Take your Bibles again and let's go back to Romans 8 and, um, and look again at um, a vital promise, a vital description, I guess, is more accurate. We're in Romans chapter 8. Um, I want to read for you once again. Um, I want to begin reading at verse 14. I want to read through verse 17, and, and we'll try to cover verses 16 and 17 tonight. <clears throat> there? I guess I'm not there. Um, Okay. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Um, I don't know whether you remember, it's been a couple of weeks since we were together because of uh, last week, but um, what Paul does here in, in verse 16 and then further amplifies in verse 17 is that he takes one further step in his discussion of the grounds on which you and I can be assured, certain and assured, that we are sons of God. Now, gang, um, that's a pretty stupendous claim. It was, um, it's far more stupendous for a first century Jew than for you and me. Uh, we, we've kind of grown accustomed to that, that concept of being a son or in the family of God. But as I, I tried to describe several weeks ago, the, the whole idea of being in the family of God and being a son, my goodness, no Jew, no well-respecting Jew would ever uh, have or make such a claim. So here we've got this, this unbelievable claim that is uh, mentioned for you in, in verse 14. And uh, so how is it that we know we are these children of God, we are these sons of God? And so Paul uh, gives us several steps um, that, are, that will provide some grounds of assurance that indeed we are these sons of God. He gave us the first step in verse 14. We talked about that uh, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. And so the, the, the first step was this being led of God. You might recall three or four weeks ago, uh, I gave you eight characteristics about what a person who was led uh, by the Spirit of God would look like. Things that would uh, be true of that kind of person. Well, that was, again... That's his first um, provision or first part of his argument in terms of saying, these are the sons of God. You can, be, you can be confident in that claim if you are, number one, led by the Spirit. And then he goes to verse 15, and he describes this, um, uh, this spirit of uh, fear, to, uh, uh, the spirit of bondage again to fear. And then we talked about that, uh, but there was another work of the Spirit that leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. So we've gone from a spirit of bondage into uh, into a spirit of sonship. We've gone from a spirit of bondage to to a spirit of adoption. Now, um, and then he comes to uh, verse 16, and he adds one further step, one other indication that indeed you can confidently claim at being a son. And he says, this was what it would be. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, gang, um, whatever is meant in verse 16, there's certain conclusions that we can draw. But there's a lot of discussion that goes on about verse 16. There's a lot of debate, I guess, a lot of um, interest in this statement in verse 16. But whatever Paul is communicating, there are certain things that we know for sure. First of all, whatever it is that he's describing in verse 16, you will notice that it is something that is done by the Spirit himself. Notice the inclusion of the word himself in in verse 16. Um, This thing that Paul is using as a grounds for our confidence is something that the Spirit himself does. This is something that goes on in the life of the believer that is done by the Spirit himself. This is not describing something that you do. It's something that the Spirit does in the believer. Verse 15 describes the action of my spirit. That is, I cry out, Abba, Father. But verse 16 is describing something that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes alongside my spirit, and he himself adds his witness and his testimony to mine. What is being described in verse 16 is a direct immediate witness of the Holy Spirit himself as to my sonship. That is, there is this thing that this, again, how to quantify it is, is, is somewhat difficult, but there is this role that the Spirit plays that he himself comes alongside whatever evidence I already see in my soul and confirms and witnesses to the truth of that claim. It is, a, it is a work of the Holy Spirit, His testimony, to me as to my sonship. And I would suggest to you that what is being described in verse 16 is something that occurs often in the midst of some kind of worship. I would suggest prayer. That is, in the midst of my pursuing God, the Holy Spirit on occasion comes alongside and whispers to me, The Spirit does this. Now, gang, I used, two weeks ago, I used the analogy of love. Let me use it again. Uh, I hope it's helpful. It's one thing for me to say to Susie Young, I love you. It's another thing, and more remarkable, that she replies, I love you too. Verse 15 is describing my statement I love you. Verse 16 is the reply of the Spirit saying, I love you back. Um, this is an, verse 16 is describing an inner sense that says, yes, yes, I'm loved. He really, I am the Son. Now, notice what he says in verse 16. Paul says that my spirit is already testifying. That's up in verse 15. My spirit is already testifying as to my love for God. So I have already seen some evidence in me um, that I am a son of God. But in addition to that, 
the Holy Spirit comes alongside and confirms. Um, now, gang, may I hasten to say, you don't get this all the time, nor, and I would even add, it's not an often occurrence. But the Holy Spirit, on occasion, produces in our spirit, call it your hearts, but He produces in our spirit this, this assurance that I am indeed God's child. Um, gang, I don't know how coming to church impacts you. I hope it impacts you wonderfully. I hope you walk out um, on numerous occasions in, in the strength and joy and enjoyment of your relationship to God. But that may not happen every Sunday. But it ought to happen some Sundays. There ought to be some occasion that you walk out and say, My, yes. He, the Spirit Himself, witnesses with me. He has come alongside my spirit and confirmed that what I'm saying is true. That what I believe, what I think, what I sense, what I feel, yes. There ought to be an occasion. Again, not frequent, not often, not regularly. I'm not, I'm, I don't, don't want to scare you into thinking, oh my, every Sunday there should. But there ought to be some time where the Spirit comes alongside your spirit and, and whispers. I heard you say you love me. Well, I love you back. Where he confirms that sonship in me. You know, guys, um, um, you have heard me say this before, but you know how much I have reacted to trying to guilt you into anything. Using guilt as a motivation is trying to convince you of something on the outside that you're not convinced of on the inside. And that guilt stuff will last not very long. I, I I am, there is a proper place for the use of guilt. Yes. But it is highly overworked in the evangelical community. What I would love for you to be, what I would love for you to experience on a regular basis as you leave a worship service at Gracie Van is, my goodness, yes, I heard something. I heard something that confirmed my sonship. Um, I, I say also in terms of what you have in verse 16, I think, is a scriptural foundation for the existence of assurance. Now, gang, you think, well, what, what's the big deal about that? What do you mean a, a, a scriptural foundation for an existence of assurance? Well, I mean this, because there are numerous places that say you, don't, you can't have it. Uh, a Roman Catholic cardinal by the name of Bellamarine said that assurance is a damnable and pernicious heresy. I'm saying that verse 16 gives us grounds, a scriptural foundation for the existence of assurance. I'm adding to that. I hope you taste that on numerous occasions. So that's what's being mentioned, this, this, this other thing that occurs in the life of the believer that assures him of his sonship. We looked at two others. Here's a fourth one. Excuse me, a third one, a third uh, um, indicate, a third confirmation. One of them is I'm led by the Spirit. Secondly, there is a uh, I have I have tasted of a spirit of bondage to fear, but I have also tasted of a, a spirit of adoption. 
That's mentioned in verse 15. And then he adds this in verse 16. The Holy Spirit himself comes alongside my spirit and, and confirms what I'm saying, what I'm thinking, what I'm believing, what I'm hoping, what I'm trusting. And then Paul comes to verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Now, gang, um, that is a different concept than simply sonship. You know, I spent a lot of time uh, in here on a Wednesday night talking about adoption, you may recall. But now Paul has added something else. He has added the concept of being an heir, and that's different. And and I'll try to explain that, but... um, you and I don't need to just think of ourselves as merely forgiven. You know, I, somebody stuck a ticket to heaven in my pocket and I'm not going to burn in hell. Or they sprayed me with a coat of asbestos and now I'm safe. We don't need to think of ourselves as merely forgiven, although forgiveness is wonderful. Or even merely as adopted. But you can think of yourself as an heir because the idea behind an heir is that there is an inheritance that is awaiting all of us. And now, guys, in a family of multiple sons, not everybody got an inheritance. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But my point is, Paul has added a layer onto our privilege. He has talked about adoption, he's talked about sons, and now he goes beyond that and says, you are heirs. That is a repeated theme, ladies and gentlemen. That that idea of having an inheritance is a repeated theme in the Old and New Testament. Um, The the Bible unites to to call God's people to enjoy the prospect of what awaits them. Now, gang, very honestly, uh, in the 21st century, there is evangelism that goes on today that tells people that they need to come to Christ and the benefits when they do come to Christ will simply overwhelm you. Come to Christ and all your problems are over. I I, I say to you, gang, uh, very frankly, the Bible doesn't emphasize the benefits that you derive in this life. That's not what you're going to find the Bible doing. The Bible is not going to say, you know, when people um, join the church, I have this kind of standard stock line. You know, they join the church and then they come next Sunday and I say, hey, I bet you your marriage is better. You know, and they say, what? And I say, well, because you remember here, you know, everybody's marriage gets better when you join this church. It's just, it's just a joke. Um, but uh, the idea that you come to Jesus and, man, your marriage is going to be better and you're going to have more money and you're going to have better health and you're going to, you know, just going to, the kids going to be good, the family's going to be fine. That's not true, ladies and gentlemen, necessarily. That's not what the Bible points you to. All the benefits that you're going to derive this side of heaven, that's not what the Bible does. What it does promise is something that lies mainly in the future. Not here. It points you to the inheritance. Um, There are books galore today on the shelves of Christian bookstores promising you now what only heaven can provide for you later. I'm, I'm just trying to clear up, guys, this idea of being an heir has rooted in it 
the, the emphasis upon what awaits you. Not what you get here, but the promises of the inheritance. Now, being an heir gives, um, gives you a very special position. That's what I wanted to mention tonight. Just because you were a son of the same father, it didn't necessarily mean that your position was privileged. But if you were the heir, oh, you were a privileged, uh, you were a privileged fellow. Um, um, guys, have you ever heard of the laws of primogenitor? I think it's T-U-R-E. I think there's a name. The laws of primogenitor. In the Old Testament, gang, um, the, the, a law of primogenitor simply states this, that the firstborn got everything. In the Old Testament, when, when a family possessed a lot of uh, wealth, a lot of goods, a lot of, you know, cows, um, and, and they had 19 sons, the last thing in the world that they wanted to do once the father died is divide the estate up among 19 people. Because what that did is watered down and, and um, lessened the impact and influence of that family in the community. And so as, um, as unfair as you might think it to be, uh, all of the wealth of the family went to the heir. Those were laws of primogenitor. The, the firstborn got it all because you don't want to divide up things because that would really harm the family name. That would really harm the family impact. My, my point in saying that, ladies and gentlemen, that's what you're being called. You're not being called just the son. You're being called the heir. The whole thing's yours. You, you know, there's, it's wonderful for me to thought of as a son, but you don't stop there. Oh, my, no, no, no. You're the heir. All that God has is yours. You know, guys, just as somewhat of an aside, when you come to stories like Jacob and Esau, everybody know that story? Jacob and Esau. Everybody knows who the firstborn was. That would be... Way to go, you biblical giants, you. Um, it was Esau. But who is it that God used to carry on the line of promise? Who? Jacob. That, ladies and gentlemen, is utterly scandalous. Because he has set aside the laws of primogenitor. For God to use the secondborn is to communicate utter volumes. I, I'm somewhat on the side now, but understand, for God to take Jacob and not Esau is, is, a, is, is marvel-producing because the, the communication is, no, God is not going to function under the ordinary rules of your culture. He is going to take, he's going to set aside the way you do things. But now, having said that, so when you, when you go to the Old Testament and you watch God, you know, use a woman and use, a, use Jacob instead of, you know, and, and, and you come to Exodus chapter 1 and, and Pharaoh does all these bad things to the nation of Israel and Pharaoh doesn't even get a name, but the two women, those two women that are midwives that help Moses get born and they've got names, do you know what the narrator is saying to you? 
He's saying God doesn't do it like men expect. He makes heroes out of midwives and he sets aside pharaohs. Because that's the way men think it's, it, it operates. It doesn't operate like that. God operates on principles of pure, unmitigated grace. Now, but back to our story. <laughs> what Paul is calling you is that, that the idea is you're not simply one of the 19 sons. No, 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 no. You are the heir. You are the one that carries on the family name. Um, you are in the privileged position. Our position, number one, is absolutely safe. I've been telling you for, I mean, they, somebody got all over me the other day and said, how many more times are you going to repeat Romans 8, 1? There is therefore now no count. I don't know, a lot more times. But, but the, that's the theme here, guys, that you are safe. And for Paul to use this term, yeah, you're in the family of God. Ooh, isn't that exciting? And you're a son. No kidding, I'm a son. And you're the heir. There's, there's, no, there's nothing else that can be said about you. you, you are in the, you're in a position of absolute privilege. You're in a position of absolute safety. Um, you're in a, in a position of, of immutability. That is, there's, there's not going to be any changes to your posture and your standing. The, the heir, the heir was the one in the, in the Roman family that got all this special training. Because, you know, he was going to have to carry on the family business. And if he's going to get the family business, he needs to get, you know, more training than the other guys. You know, they can, they can work in the warehouse, but not the heir. The heir's got to be taken care of. We've got, we got to get him some special training because he's so important. And by the way, um, I hate to tell you this part, but um, the training that the heir, the training that heir, that sons get, <laughs> oops, uh, that would be called discipline. But, I mean, he's being readied for the inheritance. <laughs> um. There is a, the, the idea behind the term heir is that there is a closer relationship with the father because the father tells the heir things that he doesn't tell all the sons because all the other sons, they don't need to know this stuff because they're not the heir. You're the heir. Huh. You need to, so, I mean, I'm going to draw you, I'm going to draw you close to my side. I'm going to pull you up tight because I got I to whisper things in your ear because you got to get ready to take over, you know, when you get the inheritance. That's what, I mean, Paul is, is, is draining his vocabulary of words to try and communicate who you are and your position and standing. I have to tell you, in this family, there ain't anybody bigger than the heir. He was the hottest shot of the hottest. He was it. And that's the term that he used to describe, he uses to describe God's people. Then he goes on, if then, if, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. There, there's that thing again, ladies and gentlemen, that I told you is my life message. Um, why does Paul introduce this joint heirs with Christ business? Because it's once again a, an, and, um, Oh, a suggestion, a, a hint that I am in union with him. I'm a joint heir. 
That's, that's my theme in glory, union with Christ. But, so he, he weaves that, that thing in once again in a different way. He calls us not just an heir, but a joint heir with Christ. You're in union with Christ. And then he closes this verse by saying, um, If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. This is an interesting little tidbit, I think. Why does Paul suddenly introduce the question of suffering? He has been saying all of this glorious stuff about children and adoption and sons and heirs. And then he says, uh, if indeed we suffer with it. It's, it's as if, once again, you watch the, um, the great pastor. Because that's what Paul's doing, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, um, what you see in that statement is, a, is the, the a great pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. He's not just a theologian. He's a pastor. And he's thinking about how his people must be responding to what he just wrote. I just call them heirs, and they're out there thinking, wait a minute. You mean this is how heirs are treated? You mean the Roman government takes all our people off and feeds them to the lions? Uh, Paul, uh, I'm just a little bit underwhelmed here by your statement because um, in the midst of our hard times, this whole discussion about being an heir kind of falls on deaf ears, Paul. Um, How can I reconcile my pain with being an heir? Um, And I think the Apostle Paul understands that's what they're going to be thinking uh, I'm going to be calling them an heir, but all they can sense right now is their pain. And so he, he introduces this idea of suffering, its redemptive value. Suffering for Christ is simply a further way of being certain about my sonship. The suffering gang that we undergo as Christians is a part of our preparation for the inheritance. You know, you know this. This is nothing new. But you learn things about the Lord Jesus, when you're suffering, that you would have never known any other way. I told you a minute ago, you got, you got to be drawn real close up next to the Father. And much of the time, the way that he does that is through this um, administration of suffering. Um, you, you'll also notice... That he says, if we indeed suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. That is, um, even, I mean, we're, we're experiencing nothing more than did our joint heir. He's our pattern for this suffering. Uh, we, have a, um, we have the same enemies that he does. We have the same struggles that he does. So let me just quickly kind of summarize verses 14, 15, 16, and 17 for you, and we'll quit. Gang, once again, may I tell you, assurance is the prized possession of the believer. It is the prized possession of all those who have gladly and eagerly and joyously acquiesced to the plan of salvation that God has outlined. And that plan of salvation is simply, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I embrace the God-provided one. So, Assurance is available to all those people who have yielded to that plan of salvation. And that is then, that is, that yielding is then confirmed in a couple of ways. Number one, it's confirmed by a whole renovation of my soul 
in the great work of the Spirit of sanctification. Um, my properly being or my properly exercising faith in this God-provided Savior can be evidenced in this renovation of soul that is taking place in my life, which we call the process of sanctification. That's one of the confirmations that indeed I have yielded to the right gospel and thus assurance is mine. The other thing that he does is that the Holy Spirit comes alongside and he whispers. The Holy Spirit himself whispers, you're real. You ever heard that? I sure hope so. Father, uh, use your word to instruct us in a path of righteousness. Our desire is to not turn to the left or to the right, but to remain um, dutifully obedient an obedience enabled by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We commit ourselves to that path, Lord, praying that you'll be pleased in how we reflect your great glory to the world. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.